Hi, welcome to Showcasing.eu with Pedro Teles. Today, we'll be talking about mainly urban design and technology. The interview for today's show is Sasha Azelmeyer, an expert in the field of knowledge and innovation-intensive urbanism in international environments and general director of Living Labs Global, a non-profit association based in Copenhagen, with the objective to promote innovation in services and mobility in cities. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the show. Hi, Pedro. Very nice to be here. Um, let's start with uh, Living Labs Global and what it is. Well, Living Labs Global is uh, really started uh, eight years ago as um, an idea to say, let us use uh, cities as laboratories for new technologies, not just uh, public technologies, not just uh, public government services, but also as a way to help companies to invent and test new ideas and bring them to the market. And over the time, we started developing this with uh, cities like Barcelona, Copenhagen, and a number of others. Over time, we've learned that really the, the biggest obstacle to innovation is not only the way we are innovating, the way we are structuring uh, the, the product and service development, but also how the market works, the market between cities. And what we've learned was that Many amazing solutions are invented around the world in cities, by companies, by cities, by, by research centers. But almost all of them fail to scale up. They fail to reach a market outside the original city. And instead, what happens usually is that other cities get inspired by what they see and then rather reinvent or copy the solution than actually working together with the original inventor or provider to adapt it to their own needs. And this happens on such a large scale. We have uh, 557,000 local governments in the world and we really have not been able to find any significant number that work differently. So our mission today is to change the way local governments in particular are taking decisions about technology We want to open them up to look outside for, for good solutions to their problems, to present their problems uh, openly so that solution providers can come forward and to help them evaluate uh, new technologies before procuring them by piloting them and sharing the, the results so that you can actually see the real impact of a technology and not just the expected impact according to uh, calculations. Going back to the start, um, who had the idea of creating Living Labs Global? How was the process? Where did it come from? Well, the, the, the process came out of um, our work uh, as, a, as a consultancy, originally working with cities in, in, in Europe, in China, in, in, uh, all over Asia, um, on working with how they can change the economic basis and uh, become ready for the future, so to speak. And this was really as a kind of economic strategy. How do you move from uh, industrial-based cities or service-based cities towards uh, innovation-based economies? Now, what we discovered was that as, as advisors, cities uh, typically then built technology centers, they typically built incubators, they typically built research centers, but they rarely used the technologies they were promoting themselves to change the way the city is run. 
And given that public procurement constitutes about uh, between 17 and 19 percent of GDP and local government procurement about 5 percent of global GDP, we're missing out a major opportunity to engage local government in stimulating innovation and becoming an early adopter. So we worked together with cities uh, and we realized we have to offer them a different instrument from what they've had at their disposal previously, which was to build buildings and large infrastructures and actually give them support, a shared instrument across cities, a shared service and a shared support to actually innovate in the way they're designing services. And this emerged over time that we needed to get cities to collaborate. First of all, they, they could see what is possible so that someone in one city who would say, no, that's impossible, we could take them to another city and see that, yes, indeed, it's possible and meet their counterpart there to explain them how they've done it. And this is how we originally set up a network of, of collaboration between cities and more and more also involving companies. And today this has grown into a network of 40 cities around the world in Europe, Asia, Africa, North and South America, as well as 450 technology companies and research centers that are working together with those cities to redesign and reinvent and create entirely new services in cities and bring them to the market. So why, why do you think cities have been very keen into putting, on, putting out money to support, let's say, as you explain, incubators and, and uh, technology centers? And why don't they use the technology afterwards? Well, it's, um, there is nothing more compelling to, this, to a city than opening up a biotechnology research center. It's the perfect construct. Um, and it's similar to the construct of, uh, of often even uh, science and technology parks. Uh, the reason why it's compelling is that you can spend money uh, in, a, in a way that is traditional by, through construction, meaning you can actually uh, invest. Uh, that construction typically is completed within uh, the election cycle, meaning that uh, politically you can actually present a result within the, the four-year term. But you do not have to explain the performance of it for another 25 years, meaning that an incubator, a research center, a, a biotech research center is supposed to deliver long-term results. You know, It's explained to the public as an important investment into the future of the city and the economic fabric and the knowledge of the city. But actually, you cannot expect results for another 10 to 25 years because this is how long it takes, by which time it's someone else's problem. So it's become the perfect, <laughs> perfect uh, compelling mechanism. Now, if in turn you look at uh, what it takes a city to change the way it delivers transport services or health services, it means that you actually have to internalize the investment, meaning that maybe about 10% of the cost are the actually technology and 90% are the organizational change. Now, technologies, of course, have... Uh, uh, typically a significant benefit that you actually can replace employees with technology. And for example, in the city of Stockholm, the, the e-services program where the city invests 170 million euros, 
over five years, has the explicit goal to reduce the number of public employees in the city administration by using technologies and at the same time improve services. Now, many, many cities uh, and the way public organizations are run also at departmental level are motivated by fighting for budgets, by rather increase the budget spending and the head count. And you will find very few department leaders who actually want to reduce their department and even replace the entire department by technology. And of course, uh, public employees and the organizations are are on the one hand at the disposal of political leaders. On the other hand, political leaders cannot entirely uh, intervene and uh, typically they do not like to make enemies of the departments they oversee. So if you look at this, one is a very compelling proposition. You can make a big investment, get a visible result that sounds perfect on paper and you never have to show whether it works or not. And the other is entirely about accountability of uh, your public spending being used wisely, probably also working with uh, outside providers who might have the best solution. And uh, you have no lobby for that inner city to say this is what you should do. Are those the main factors impeding European cities to make their transition into smart cities? Or is there anything else? Well, interestingly enough, the current debate on, on, on smart cities also, again, focuses very much on, on infrastructure. So you will see uh, cities considering um, smart metering, smart energy meters, and so forth. Uh, municipal wireless network was another trend that, that has kind of stopped by now, but that was a, a previous wave. And uh, you see exactly the same thing happening again, you know, investment into infrastructures, into, into items, rather than actually starting by rethinking how the processes in a city could or should work and looking at this as a dynamic process of, of restructuring the way we're thinking about services. So yes, it is in many ways the, the prime problem. But it also means that the technology market has yet to discover what the business model is in really transforming city. Are you selling technology to a city or are you doing what um, a city we worked with a few years ago, Oeras outside, uh, Port, mm -hmm. uh, outside Lisbon, Lisbon yeah. were doing on the water management where they said we want to reduce our water management by 50%. We think uh, there are companies that have technologies, uh, sensors and uh, water management systems that can deliver that reduction. But we do not want to buy any technology, but we want to reward the company that delivers this solution with paying them the profits we're making from saving, saving water. So this was a very different model. They said, we have a challenge. We're willing to pay for someone who solves the problem significantly, but we're not interested in procuring sensors and then, are then being stuck with technology, but we want to buy the performance yeah. of the overall system. Exactly. Now, this is a rare occasion that a city does that. Typically, cities are not communicating their problems, but are buying the sensors or companies are expecting them to buy the pieces. And then the city is supposed to make sense of what this does as a system and whether it's going to be successful. So the cities are also encountering a, a big risk in, in adopting this technology, especially kind of emerging technologies that, that have real physical 
sensor needs. And then secondly, in actually implementing and operating it, it becomes a big challenge for them. So I think there, there is a, both a challenge in, in the provider side that the business models are, are not adapted to really how cities might want to solve problems, but also cities are not really openly discussing how, how that should be changed. So they're not giving any clear message to the market about what they need and uh, how they're willing to contract it. Could you give us a few more examples of work that Living Labs Global has done in Europe? Interesting stuff. Well, uh, our our work is uh, really largely to uh, to so to speak maintain the system. So the credit always goes to the the companies or the cities that are doing something great. I think one of our most wonderful uh, success stories uh, is what happened in Stockholm over the last five years around their accessibility agenda. So the city of Stockholm in the year 2000 or 2001 launched an initiative to be the most accessible capital city in the world by 2010 and launched a big investment program that uh, created a lot of improvements in the cities uh, in terms of accessibility for wheelchairs, for uh, disabled people and, and so forth. Now, one user group then came forward after a few years and said, we, we're not actually seeing any improvement. All those ramps and so on don't help us. And those were the, the visually impaired uh, community. And at the same time, the city was uh, investing a lot into digitizing urban infrastructure and uh, the road system, pedestrian system, bicycle system, and having very high resolution digital mapping resources. And what they did was they um, uh, made the connection between saying, look, what if we could know in real time everything that happens in public space? And what if we could navigate blind people precisely through the city? We could actually make them independent and we could allow them to, to move freely through the city. So they launched a, a, a pilot project with a, with a small company that is a provider of, of mapping services to investigate uh, what is possible. They involved all the stakeholders representing the visually impaired uh, citizens in Sweden. So the associations, the specialist newspapers and media providers and, and, and others. And uh, they had a very positive resonance to the idea of developing a device, a navigation device for, for uh, visually impaired people. And over the last five years, they've worked uh, in several cycles with, with the blind people, with the city authorities and other stakeholders to actually integrate the data in the city sufficiently in real time so that you know for example, any road work in the city or any repair measure in a sidewalk is reported in real time and becomes an obstacle around which the, the navigation system will guide the person around. And further, what they've done is they worked with the blind people on the usability, on the trust issues, on the favorite devices. So starting um, in March this year, they launched the first full 24-7 uh, group of users, uh, blind people that actually have lived with this device now 24 hours a day and 
are completely independently using it because you can imagine in the beginning they had people walking next to them so in case something goes wrong they don't get run over but now <laughs> about uh, 15 people are actually uh, for another month are using this full time before the technology goes live at the end of uh, at the end of the summer no problem so far with it no, no, no. It works. I mean, it's been tested and, and used uh, fantastically over the last five years. I've used it myself. It's, it's incredible how, how precise it is. Now, what is interesting is that there is no rocket science technology in this. It has a GPS. It has a step counter. It has an um, accelerometer in the device. And that allows you to get very precise positioning. And it uses real-time data that most cities have available, but it actually, uh, the difference is that the data quality is good enough for the service to work. And the third part is that the city is not motivated by offering another gadget or another service to, to the citizens, but it's part of their overall goal to make the city accessible. And by making it accessible, what the city means is their goal is that disabled people uh, whether visually impaired or otherwise, should become normal citizens, meaning that they ultimately should go to work and have a job and have a normal life. And that, of course, has also a big uh, cost, uh, public service cost implication. And the city of Stockholm now has an annual cost of maintaining the e-adapt system of 360,000 euros per year and has calculated annual benefit uh, when the system is now running for the whole community of 17 million euros. So there's a very clear political and economic rationale between, uh, behind that investment that the city has undertaken and the technology that was developed. And this is really a groundbreaking technology and it's open source. It's uh, available to, to all kinds of other cities. The uh, Olympic Delivery Authority in London was interested in adopting it for the Olympic Games. Many other cities around the world have expressed interest. And our role is um, partly to model the impact that technology would have on other cities. So to give you an example, Stockholm is a very small city. But in New York, you have... 360,000 citizens whose lives would be completely transformed overnight by being, avail being able on their own at any moment in time to leave the house and go wherever they want to in the city without asking help from anyone. And in Tokyo, it would be 660,000 people. This is the size of a whole city uh, population that could see their lives completely transformed by a fairly simple and, and low-cost technology. Do you consider preferable to renovate or retrofit existing cities um, with solutions such as the one that you've just mentioned, or to create them anew as Living Planet e is trying to achieve in Planet e Valley in Puerto Portugal as well? I would say that um, cities, uh, if you look at what cities are, is the, the urban process is much more than, than the construction process. So... Um, Technology is a, is a social process. Uh, the development, adoption and, and uh, dissemination of technology is a social process, much like building roads and other infrastructures and buildings are social processes. And they happen for a reason. They happen to, to facilitate education, transport, trade and, and so forth. Now, technology is, is, uh, has always been part of the urban process and 
so in that sense, I think there is absolutely no reason why existing cities shouldn't transform themselves into interactive and more transparent and accountable and um, automated cities. And this is what's happening. If you look at projects here in, in Barcelona or elsewhere, you'll see a lot of these technologies being disseminated. So I don't see any purpose in building new smart cities per se, but there is, of course, especially in developing countries like, like India and China, there is a big demand for the development of new cities um, just because of the change in, in population from rural environments to, to urban environments. And, for example, in India, we're working with, uh, with, with new city developments, and there are about 40 new cities in planning in India. And those have a very different rationale than maybe saying, uh, how would we plan a new city in Europe, which, uh, which as making it more, more technologically equipped, probably is not enough reason to develop it. But on the other hand, if there are opportunities like in Paredes... That is, of course, uh, an interesting experiment and an interesting opportunity to rethink the way cities are developed. So, in short, I think the, the retrofitting of cities is certainly the dominating theme everywhere. And you see cities like Eindhoven or Copenhagen on their way to reaching uh, zero carbon emission goals uh, within the next 15 to 25 years purely by retrofitting. So I think you can achieve all the solutions. And if you look at what is happening in different cities, blind people navigate in Stockholm, zero carbon emissions in, in Copenhagen and Eindhoven. You have an unbelievable bicycle uh, system, transport system operating in Copenhagen again. So all the pieces exist also in as much in retrofitted cities as much as in new-built cities. So I think we're, we're purely facing the obstacle of what can we do first where, rather than whether it's possible or not. Regarding data protection and privacy in digital cities, um, when we start discussing about the amount of data that gets produced nowadays and will be produced in the future due to the number of sensors um, uh, placed and deployed in cities in Europe. My question about this is how do you ensure that data is protected and privacy is given to the citizens? And I've put this question also to, to Steve Lewis from Living Planet a few months ago. And I wanted mm -hmm. to know your, your view on it. I think, uh, first of all, um, there's an interesting phenomenon right now that cities are looking at sensors and are discussing sensor data uh, as a tool for managing the city. But cities are, generally speaking, not keen to publish the data. Exactly. And uh, they're not keen to publish the data, not for privacy reasons or anything like that. They don't want to expose uh, to citizens the, the reality of the city. So I give you... A couple of examples. Um, three years ago, a company called uh, Sensaris uh, came to us with a wearable sensor, uh, that you, a wearable environmental sensor that you can wear like a watch on your wrist 
to collect data about uh, atmospheric quality, so air quality, uh, noise pollution, and so forth. And they were looking for cities in Europe uh, to pilot this because they were saying if citizens can, can measure data where they are and where they go, it A, creates a much more relevant map because you find out where people actually are and what the quality is like. And secondly, the citizens can collect their own data and see what the quality is around them. And not a single city was willing to pilot this technology because they did not want to empower citizens to collect their own environmental data. They did not want citizens to say, why is it smelly on this corner? Why is the air quality bad on my playground? And the same happened, of course, also when the uh, UMTS, the mobile network antennas, were blanket rolled out across Europe and cities like Salzburg said, look, we do not actually agree that a mobile phone company should decide on where they're putting antennas right next to a kindergarten or primary school or a playground, but that this has to be a, an inclusive process. Now, a more, uh, um, a more recent example also is that um, in Barcelona, we've had a company working with the city to use satellite technology to monitor the water quality on the beaches. And the objective of the project was that the, the city could almost in real time show a map of the beaches indicating the water quality so that citizens could at any time see the <clears throat> water pollution and, and so forth uh, of the water. Now, the city has uh, procured that technology and is, is using it, but they have not gone public with it. because, the, Well, you can, you can guess. and it's, it's, uh, They don't publish the reason why they haven't published the data. But, <laughs> of course, our assumption could be that they're not confident that the news would be entirely good to the citizens. So probably what they're doing now, or the, the internal argument, is to use the data to improve the water quality, first of all. And then once the water quality is good, show the citizens that, in fact, it's good water quality. So what this means is that I think there's, there's an issue about data privacy, which is uh, hugely important. But more importantly, data makes the cities more, more accountable. And, uh, of course, many cities are using open data policies to publish data sets. But they're also, first of all, they're selective about the data sets. And secondly, very little of that data is actually regularly updated and of any usable quality, meaning that uh, you, you're publishing results of something that doesn't continually happen. And of course, sensors are going to give a much more immediate result. So in our point of view, the, the starting point might be to say, um, let's actually get the data to measure the performance of a city and to measure whether the policy is good. There was a big scandal in Madrid, which made it to the cover of the Financial Times a few months ago, placing the environmental yes, sensors first one. in polluted areas, you know, to, to make the argument we need, we need a lot of money to uh, improve the air quality, it's so bad. And then after a few years, uh, reporting that the mayor has solved the environmental problem, and then it turned out that all he's done is actually move the sensors from the polluted areas to the green areas and measure the air quality again. So, of course, these are entirely new, new processes of, of generating information and uh, vigilance by the public. 
And I think we're, we're just at the beginning of this process and cities really generally are not keen to generate that amount of transparency. And for us, for example, those cities that are really too committed to, uh, to changing their public services are the ones that are also committed to opening up their results in, in a true fashion to the citizens. And then the other side is, of course, then the data privacy. But that's almost like a, a secondary layer because immediately we're not looking at any sensors that gather hugely sensitive data. We're gathering CCTV data. That's a long debate and uh, that is established argument. So it's not really a smart city discussion. Uh, um, British cities are for, for many years have covered every square meter with CCTV coverage and we know what that does and what that doesn't do. But actually, environmental sensors on counting traffic, on counting uh, pollution, on uh, measuring water quality, measuring water loss and leakage in the, the water system, these are not really sensitive privacy issues. And those are the kind of data we're most associating with the kind of services we're discussing here. Um, last few questions, Sasha. Where do you see European cities in 10 years' time? Leading the pack or falling behind? No, they're, they're, they're going to be uh, leading um, or part of the leadership. Um, they may not offer the technological opportunity of a new-built city in, in China or India to adopt all the latest infrastructure in one go. But um, those cities as well in 10, 15 years' time will face the need for renewal and to retrofit what today is new in the future. And I think uh, European cities as well as established Asian cities have a very strong urban culture and uh, a very strong urban culture of renewal and uh, service provision. And I think every, any city that for hundreds of years has been delivering services and has created the institutional framework will be at an advantage in the longer term by comparison to new cities that have to develop the management and governance systems from scratch. So new cities, for example, they do not necessarily have a political representation. We're working with new cities in, in, in India and also in Thailand where no one knows who should be the mayor of that city and how whether that is really a political entity or just an urban development project. Um, and of course, with governance comes the ability to then uh, hold governance accountable and deliver services and service quality and change the priorities of a city. So I think their, their European cities have an advantage for generally a democratic culture and uh, democratic institutions and uh, good media uh, vigilance that, that keeps uh, decision makers on their toes. The big challenge for European cities will be whether citizens are going to become interested in smart cities, meaning whether citizens will begin to recognize this as a, a voting issue, whether they will recognize that the quality of public services and the cost effectiveness is related to technology used in the city and therefore begin to evaluate the performance of politicians like uh, in Germany activists are for 30, more than 30 years now overseeing uh, the environmental credibility 
of public policies through a green party through uh, uh, activists uh, that that believe that you know not all technology is good and important and i think there we'll 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 need to see whether citizens will pick up on this because the smart city discussion to date is very much an expert community that basically agrees on one thing you know if you go to smart city congresses and expos that more technology is generally good and all the big technology companies will tell you that you buy a lot of our servers and software and everything will get better. <laughs> uh, and, and, and our experience is often that actually, you know, when you rethink a service from the perspective of the citizen and the city, you may use less technology but smarter to deliver better services, which is not necessarily good business for, for the technology companies that are leading the, the smart cities debate nowadays. So I think there is an interesting uh, process that's going to take place. And I think the reluctance of cities to adopt smart technologies until now is also that they're not really being convinced that, that it's all that amazing. You know, it's a kind of very much still a technology, a provider push for saying, look, buy this, buy that, and imagine you could do this, imagine you could do that. Whereas when you really look at operating solutions and like the, the impact on the blind community in Stockholm or the waste management system here in Barcelona or what happens with, with lighting in, in the Netherlands, there's very, very little experience to date on what really the results are and how, how positive the results are, what really the costs are, what really the effect is. So I think we have a lot more to, to see there and to learn there and then hopefully also a societal movement will come to, uh, to put pressure on, on decision makers to take the right decisions. Sasha, last question for today, uh, personal one if I may. Who do you look up, who do you look up to? Oh... <laughs> Oh, that is uh, that is an uh, that is an interesting question. I uh, I only recently I haven't got his name now, but uh, maybe maybe you can research that and insert it into the the interview. There's a man called called uh, the he's called Mister Toilet, and he revolutionized the way. Uh, impoverished uh, development uh, communities in developing countries um, are managing their hygiene and are building their latrines, their toilets. And he started out by doing this in South Africa in a, in a slum. And he sat down with the community. He's an architect like me, I have to say. Sat down with the community and said, look, what is your dream toilet? You know, let's just dream here. What would be your dream toilet? They had no, no hygienic, no sanitation infrastructure. He said, what would be your dream toilet? And started a whole visioning process with them where they developed in workshops, developed ideas of what is the, the dream toilet. And then he came back to them with the design and said, look, now you have to build it. And they said, no, no, we're not going to build it. Get the government to build it. And they said, no, no, no. He said, you have to build it because if you don't build it, you're not going to maintain it. And he implemented that uh, together with them, they built the toilet and it became the center of the community. Everything suddenly centered around the toilet. And next to a toilet, a small shop was opened and a cafe and so forth. And it became the center of the whole community. And this was really a, a great project. But most importantly, he's now built 100 million 
such toilets in in Africa and Asia and so forth. And uh, if you ask me, that is a very wise uh, use of of your skills if you're able to develop a new way of doing something and then also are able to spread it around the world to such a great effect. Well, on that note, Sasha, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure having you here and, and extracting all your knowledge and all your input on these topics. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Pedro. <laughs>